Greetings, greetings, greetings. You are now tuned in to No Pork and All Pearls, a podcast for manifestation, a podcast for self-actualization, and a podcast that gives you and equips you with the tools in which you need to live your life by design and not by default. I want to take time to give thanks to the originators, the ancestors, because if it was not for them, there would be no me. I'll take time to give thanks to all the light workers and thank you for giving the ultimate sacrifice yourself for the upliftment of humanity. And I want to thank each and every one of you, the listeners who tune in and who passed the word about this podcast well i'm gonna um call on the help of the ancestors for today because this episode is probably going to be the most important episode and it may not be the most popular but it's gonna be the most necessary and you know i'm just asking that you would bear with me because there's going to be a lot of reading and normally when you know there's a lot of reading it gets a bit boring and repetitive and it doesn't seem to hold the audience attention for a long time and that's a challenge when doing a podcast you know to try to hold a listeners attention for a lengthy period of time when you're trying to give quality truth or facts you know this is not just information I'm going to be giving it's going to be facts and I just want to start off by giving a title which most of you should know if you listened last week but you know not assuming that all of you listened last week The title of tonight's episode is The Year of Jubilee. The Year of Jubilee. Tonight we're dealing with the Year of Jubilee. Now, many people may question the significance of why is this important, talking about the Year of Jubilee. Is that something that's even real? How does that even apply today? Well, there's many things that we have to really understand and overstand and understand to really know what we're talking about when we're dealing with the year of Jubilee. But to sum it all up, and to make it clear and to make it very basic. The reason why the year of Jubilee is important is because we're dealing with civics. When you're talking about the year of Jubilee, this is civics and a civic requirement. Now, before we get started, it's a bunch of stuff that I wanna talk about tonight. 
bunch of things that I need to say, but the most primary impressive thing that I need to say is that I took an oath to the Constitution to protect and serve. To protect and to serve and to uphold the Constitution. Now, when I say I took an oath to protect, to serve, and to uphold the Constitution. An oath is something serious. It's something serious. It's something that is not conditional. It's not something that I'll do it if I feel like it. It's a vow. And when I, it's an oath of allegiance. And the allegiance was to a higher power, a, how, a higher authority. It was not to just a branch in the military. The oath was to God, the creator. And the oath was actually taken before I even incarnated on this physical plane. And with that oath, comes a duty to whom much is given, much is required. And my job is to make sure that I'm enforcing this constitution, that I'm protecting the people of this constitution or of this landmass indigenous people and to also serve and in service it doesn't matter about the condition of the people it's not a conditional agreement to serve if the people are worthy to be served then i'll serve them no the purpose and the matter of me taking the oath to serve these people is because it's going to come a point in time where some people are not going to be able to do for themselves. Some people are not going to be able to look after themselves. Some people are going to be oppressed. Some people are going to be violated. Some people are going to be in positions of mental incompetency. It's not my job to bash them. It's not my job to, to down them or to look down upon them and to basically condemn them for their flaws, condemn them for their discrepancies, condemn them for their short, shortcomings, or to even condemn them for their slothfulness. their inability to interpret law, the inability to provide for themselves. That's not my job. When I took that oath, I understood that there would be opposition and that there is opposition. And when I took that oath and I said that I would stand up and I would fight, fighting, you fight for people who can't fight for themselves.
even when they fight against you. If you're in a war, if you're in combat, and you you are a a soldier in combat, and you're fighting on an opposing side, and as you're in battle, when you're combating an opponent, your focus is your target, whomever you're supposed to be deeming to be the threat. You're supposed to remove the threat. You're supposed to neutralize the threat. You're supposed to eliminate the threat. So in doing so, civilians are individuals who are not in the position to be in combat or who's not trained for combat or who are, who are not aware that there is combat taking place. The job is to get the civilians to safety, to remove them from any threat of danger, to get them to a position where they can be out of the way while you go forth and you conduct battle. Last episode, we were talking about spiritual war. Everyone is not a soldier. Everyone, when, when we're talking about war, everyone is not in a position where they can actually fight for themselves. Just like in the war, you have troops, you have individuals who are trained for warfare, trained for combat. You understand what I'm saying? There's people that's trained for this. And the people that's trained for this, their job is not to turn on the people that's not trained for it. When you are in a position where you're supposed to be advocates, you're supposed to be trustees, you're supposed to be soldiers, you're supposed to be public servants, it's not your job or your responsibility to abuse those that you're supposed to be protecting, that you're supposed to serve, and that you're supposed to be looking after. So I'm saying all this to say that I would lay down my life for the people because that's the oath that I took. I'm not afraid to lay down my life, and I'm not afraid to die for a worthy cause. But the problem is, is that in this time, it's not for me to die for a cause, it's for me to live for the cause and to help to navigate the people through these times. It's a difference, it's a difference. Many people think that you must be a martyr, you must give your life as the ultimate sacrifice, give your life, meaning to what they call die. You know, it's no death. Energy doesn't die, it just changes form. But when you transition from one physical form to whatever other form you're gonna transition to, many people think that that's what you're supposed to be trying to do. You out there, you're supposed to be putting your life on the line and die. But we see what that does. When an individual loses their life and they die, 
They're celebrated for a moment, and then the people return back into the state and the condition in which they were already in. That's not productive. That's not what is needed in this time. What's needed in this time is for individuals to help to navigate the people by any means necessary to their liberation and to their freedom. And that's what individuals have to do. And for those who don't do it, well, I mean, that's, that's on them. If you were called to help to liberate people and you have the ability to liberate people but you choose not to, then that's something you have to deal with. But for me, I'm going to do what I have to do in order to get the people to the position in which they need to be in. And it's simple as that. You know, and I'm not going to abuse my people. I'm, I'm going to love my people. That's why we have to love, learn, to, learn to love instead of hate. We have to learn to love the people. And if you don't love the people that you're here to protect and the ones that you're here to liberate and the ones you're here to serve, then you need to get out the way. Just get out the way and just shut up. Don't be a part of the problem. You know, don't be a agent provocateur provoking people to do things out of ignorance and to keep them in a state of confusion if you're not going to bring solutions to the table and you're not going to build an infrastructure in which these solutions can be attained then you should just get out the way but I just had to say that before I got started so just bear with me tonight. We're going to deal with the year of Jubilee. And I'm, tr I'm going to try not to make it too, too lengthy because I know it's hard to just sit up here and just listen to information. So I'm going to do my best to keep it brief but concise. And I'm going to try to do my best to make sure that everything that needs to be touched on will be touched upon. So stay tuned to tonight's episode the year of Jubilee, and we shall return on No Pork and All Pearls. Okay, and we're back to tonight's episode, the year of Jubilee. And I'm going to first start off, we're going to go to the Constitution. The Constitution for the United States. Of America. First thing that I'm going to read from the Constitution is we're going to read we're going to read Article Six, and we're going to read Section Two of Article Six. Notice I'm saying Article Six. You know the first. Seven articles of the Constitution was the Bill of Rights. So, Article 6, Section 2 says, This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, semicolon, 
and all treaties made, comma, or which shall be made, comma, under the authority of the United States, comma, shall be the supreme law of the land, semicolon, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. All right. So, once again, Article 6, Section 2, it says, This Constitution and the laws of the United States will shall be, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. So it's talking about the Constitution and it's talking about the laws of the United States and it's talking about all treaties. The ones that were previously the ones that shall be made they are the supreme law of the land that's important to remember when we're talking about the year of jubilee the next thing that i want to read is Let's see. We're going to read the First Amendment. Let's read the First Amendment. The First Amendment, which was documented as 1791, this is when this took effect, 1791, says Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Everyone always talks about the freedom of speech, right? So check this out. This is the next portion of the First Amendment. Or abridging the freedom of speech, comma, or of the press, press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. It's a lot to unpack than that. Now, real quick, it's saying Congress shall make no law that stops an individual having their religion of choice and they have a free right to exercise their religion. This is the First Amendment. It talks about being able to speak freely. And then it also talks about the right of the people to peaceably assemble. 
people are talking about these peaceful protests and all that kind of stuff. Peaceful protests. We we out here peaceful protesting. In the First Amendment, it says you have the right to peaceably assemble. And then also to petition the government for a redress of grievances. I talked some episodes ago about going to the world courts and basically trying the United States for genocide. Genocide, that's what, what's going on, and that's what is going on against the people. The crime is genocide. And that's something that should be taken up in court. We have a right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. But this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the year of Jubilee. So why did I read? The First Amendment. Why is the First Amendment so important when we're talking about the year of Jubilee? Okay. We find the concept of the year of Jubilee in the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus. Leviticus is one of the five books of the Torah which in the Judaic religion or Judaism, however you want to call it, they acknowledge their five first five books as the Torah. So I'm going to actually be reading tonight out of the Talmud. which is a Jewish text. I'm going to read from the book of Leviticus, but it's coming from the Jewish text. Why am I using the Jewish text to read Leviticus? Well, I could also use the Catholic text. It's Leviticus in the, in the um, Catholic text, but I can't use the so-called Protestant version of the text. Why not? Do you know what Protestants are? Do you know what Protestants are? Let's look up the word Protestant in the dictionary. We're going to go to the Webster Dictionary and look up Protestant. I can tell you out of my own recollection, because I have experience. When I was in the military, we were in training in on Sundays, which is the first day of the week, they gave you an option to go to a religious service. And your options were twofold. You can either go to the Catholic service or you can go to the Protestant service. Those were the only two options, Catholic and Protestant. Now, turning in my dictionary, you know, I like to use the real dictionary with pages. Searching for this word, but as I'm turning these pages, 
I found it real interesting that they gave us two options between Catholic and Protestant because I had never heard of Protestant. I knew about Baptist. I knew about Methodist. I knew about Episcopalian. I even knew about non-denomination. But I never heard of Protestant. I was like, what is Protestant? So, let's see. Protestant, Protestant, where we at? It's going to blow your mind for those of you who don't know what Protestant means. But hopefully, once you get the understanding of what Protestant means, then this whole thing will start becoming a little bit more clearer to you. Hmm, this is interesting. I want to see what Protestant word is. Uh, bear with me, bear with me. Come on, where are you? Probably should have went online for this one. I knew I was going to be doing a lot of this. Okay, here we go. Protestant, I found it. And real quick, the word directly above Protestant is protest. <laughs> so, Protestant, it comes from the Latin word protestant. Protestants. Protestor. Actually, it's at protestari which are all Latin forms. It says, one of a group of German princes and cities presenting a defense of freedom of conscience against an edict of the deed of spirits in 1529 intended to suppress the Lutheran movement. A member or adherent of one of the Christian churches deriving from the Reformation and affirming justification by faith, the priesthood of all believers and primacy of the Bible. A Christian not of a Catholic or Eastern church. And then this is it right here. This is the one that I really want you to grasp is one who makes or enters a protest. So Protestants are protesters. And one of those definitions in Protestant also says is not, it's a Christian that's not of a Catholic or Eastern church. So it says a Christian that is not of the Catholic church. Catholic church means a universal church, just so you know. So Protestants means protesters. So if you're a protester and if you are supposedly a Catholic or as they call them Christians, 
and you're a protester of the Christian church, that means that you are not in alignment with the laws or you're not in agreement with the laws of Catholicism. So, I gave you the First Amendment that says we all have the freedom of religion and everyone has the right to exercise their religion that they choose and to not be basically stopped from being able to be a part of a religion. But if you are protesting the religion that you're supposed to be a part of, then you're not abiding by the laws of that religion. So that makes you a lawless person or a lawless individual if you're following what I'm saying. So that's why when I'm talking about reading from Leviticus, I'm choosing to use the Torah from the Jew, Jewish text. The Jews follow the law. Judaism, they follow the law. They follow these laws to the T. These laws are the laws that was established by covenant by the forefathers of this religious group. Another word for covenant is treaty. That's why we read in Article 6, talking about the treaties of the land are the supreme law of the land. Now let's see what one of these scholars had to say about the book of Leviticus. One of the scholars said that Leviticus, and the guy's name is Dr. A. Norordiz, spelled N-O-O-R-D-T-Z-I-J. So this guy says that Leviticus is one of the most important books in the Old Testament. Without an understanding of the principles of atonement and holiness found in Leviticus, much of the New Testament has no foundation on which to stand. He also says that the theme of Leviticus is actually twofold, atonement and holiness. The basic idea inherent inherent in the word atonement is to cover, to make a covering. To cover or to making or to make a covering. That's atonement. When we look at the word holiness, holiness means sacred or sacredness. Holiness means sacred. Sacred means secret. Secret means private. So
So when we're dealing with atonement and holiness, we're dealing with public and private. We're dealing with public and private. Holiness is private. Atonement is public. And the public means to cover or to make a covering or a protection. You understand what I'm saying? To make a covering, to cover, to protect. Public servants. The public servants are the ones who are supposed to be protecting. The private, well, private individuals handle private affairs. Leviticus talks about public and private. Let me take a break. We're already at the 18-minute mark. We're going to take a break, and we're going to come back with tonight's topic, the year of Jubilee, on no pork and all pearls. And we're back to no pork and all pearls. And we're talking about the year of Jubilee. So last segment, we was talking about Leviticus and the book of Leviticus. That's what we ended off with. We were actually talking about public and private, how Leviticus is basically talking about public and private. We talked about the Constitution, how it gives you the right of religious freedom, and also it talks about how the treaties are the supreme law of the land. Now, when we're talking about Leviticus, you have to understand it says that when talking about the name of Leviticus, it talks about in the Jewish synagogue, they gave the name Torah, which means instruction and law. It means law. Torah means law. And these were the books of the Hebrew Bible. The Greek term is the Pentateuch or the Pentateuch. And the Jews followed the example of the Greek translation in subdividing the Torah, which is the law, into five books, which they call the five books of the Torah, which is the five books of the law in accordance with a general Semitic custom, each of these five subdivisions was most often referred to by means of its opening word. Now, the fourth book of the Torah is Leviticus. Leviticus is shortened from the form of Latin, which is Leviticus Libri, which means the Levitical book. 
the word Levitical is used in the same sense that appears in the epistle to the Hebrews where the writer speaks of the Levitical priesthood. So in view of this, the name corresponds closely to law of the priest. The law of the priest. So when we're talking about Leviticus, when we're talking about Leviticus, Leviticus is the law of the priest. So that's why I'm talking about in the Constitution, the freedom of religion, and then also we were talking about the treaties or the covenants being the supreme law of the land. If you can understand those two concepts, if you can understand covenant and treaty is the same thing and that that's the supreme law of the land, and you can understand that there's a freedom of religion, then you can really grasp the understanding of why the year of Jubilee is so important. Now, let's look up the word Jubilee. Now, if you go to Black's Law Dictionary, I have with me right here a fifth edition of the Black's Law Dictionary. There's a word that spelled J-U-B-E-R-E, -E, which is Jubiri, Jubiri, Jubiri. It's a Latin word. And in the civil law, it means to order, it means to direct or to command. The word jubio means I order in a will was called a word of direction as distinguished from precatory words, which means to assure or to promise. It means also to decree or pass a law. Now that's in the legal dictionary. They don't have the actual word Jubilee. So if you go to Webster, Webster has the word Jubilee. Jubilee, it comes from the lower Latin word Jubileus, and that comes from the Hebrew Yubehel. Yo Behel, Yo Behel, which means ram horn. Now, whenever you see something that's talking about a ram horn, a ram horn was something that was sounded almost like a trumpet. And that was used to make a proclamation or to proclaim something. That was something that was blown to get the attention of everyone. Now, let's see what they actually say about this term jubilee.
number one, and it's often capitalized. It says, a year of emancipation and restoration provided by ancient Hebrew law to be kept every 50 years by the emancipation of Hebrew slaves, restoration of alienated lands to their former owners, and omission of all cultivation of the land. Number two, and this is 2A, a special anniversary, especially a 50th anniversary. So a 50th anniversary is considered as a jubilee. Going back to the, the theme of 50. To be a celebration of such an anniversary. So whenever you have a celebration of a 50th anniversary, there's a jubilee. That's considered a jubilee. 3A, a period of time proclaimed by the Roman Catholic Pope ordinarily every 25 years as a time of special solemnity. B, 3B, a special plenary indulgence granted during a year of jubilee to Roman Catholics who perform certain specified works of repentance and piety. 4A, Jubilation. 4B, a season of celebration. And then finally, 5, a Negro folk song with references to a future happy time. All right. So here in the definition of the word jubilee, what stands out, it talks about 50-year period, it talks about emancipation, and it talks about restoration provided by ancient Hebrew law. Law, L-A-W, law. That's important to understand, law. We're dealing with the law, the law, ancient law. In the Constitution, in Article 6, it says all the treaties that were already made, meaning that was already in place, all the treaties that will be made are the supreme law of the land along with the Constitution. So that Constitution stands on other things. And one, some of the other things that, that the Constitution is standing on is ancient law. And one of the ancient laws is the Hebrew law. The Hebrew law is being maintained by Torah and also by Catholics. As you saw in there, in the Roman Catholic, that's something that they acknowledge. They acknowledge the Jubilee. The Roman Catholics do. Also the Jews do. Also Islam do. All these things. You say, well, what do you mean uh, about Islam? Islam do. Okay, if you go to chapter 9 in the Quran, it's 
it's the Quran. It talks about the immunity. Or the all baraat. The all baraat. It means the immunity. And let's read like a quick synopsis about that. It says, the title of this chapter is taken from the opening statement, which contains a declaration of immunity from obligations with such of the idolatrous tribes as had repeatedly broken their engagements. So idolatrous tribes are tribes that had repeatedly broken their engagements. Let's continue. This declaration is one of the most important events in the history of Islam. For here too, the Muslims, I say Muslims, had constantly suffered from the hostility of the unscrupulous, idolatrous tribes who had no regard for their treaties, dealing a blow at the Muslims whenever they had an opportunity of doing so. The chapter is known under various other names, Al-Taba, or repentance, being the best known. This is not really a new chapter, and this accounts for the Bismillah being omitted from the opening. It is admittedly a part of the last chapter, while a distinct name has been assigned to it by reason of the importance of the Declaration of Immunity from which it takes its name. A reference to the 7th and the 8th section of the last chapter will show that the idolaters repeatedly broke the agreements which bound them to remain on peaceful terms with the Muslims. This frequent violation ultimately led to the declaration of immunity because it was impossible that the Muslims should be bound forever by the terms of those agreements while their enemies could repudiate them with impunity. A declaration of immunity necessitated by the repeated treaty violation of the, of the idolaters is made in the first section with two clear exceptions. One in the case of those tribes who had remained true to their obligations and a second in the case of idolaters who sought protection from the Muslims. These later were to be conducted safely to their tribes and were not to be molested in any way. The second section gives the chief reason for freeing the Muslims from their liabilities of certain agreements, again stating expressly that the Muslims were to stand firm by their agreements so long as, to, so long as the other party adhered to their terms. In the third section, the idolaters are told that their pretensions relating to the entertainment of the pilgrims and the repairing or building of the sacred house could not save them from the consequences of their evil deeds, while the conclusion of that section calls attention to the sacrifices which the Muslims would now be required to make in the cause of truth. 
The fourth section states how Islam was triumphing in Arabia, while the fifth, after speaking of the falling off of the Jews and the Christians from the pure monotheism, monotheism of their great prophets, predict the final tri triumph of Islam, the only religion of pure monotheism in the whole world. Thenceforth, to the end, with the exception of the last three sections, the contained references to the Tabuk expedition and particularly to those who had been guilty of default in joining the expedition. Thus the hypocrites had made their presence clearly felt among the Muslims from the time of the battle of Uhud in the third year of Hajar. And they had been given a chance up to the close of the ninth year to mend their ways. And the final word with regard to them was now urgently needed. The three concluding sections are a natural sequel to the subject of hypocrisy. The 14th speak of the faithful and the 15th of their duty towards God and his prophet. Their attention being drawn in the closing words of this section to the necessity of proper arrangements for the propagation of the faith. Thus, at the end of a chapter which almost entirely deals with treaty obligations, ultimatums, and wars, the faithful are told that every Muslim community must contribute men to carry the message of truth to the whole world, which was the real object of Islam. The last section speaks of the prophet's great anxiety for the hypocrites as well as the believers. The whole of this chapter was revealed in the ninth year of the Hajar. Now, I took time to read all that just to show you that treaties are the supreme law of the land and they're taken seriously by the major religions. It's taken seriously by Islam. It's taken seriously by Judaism. Judaism. It's taken serious by the Christians, not the protesters, but the actual ones who follow the law, the Christians. In this case, we'll say the Catholics. So that's why many times many religions are classified as cults or they really don't recognize certain religions because many of the religions don't honor treaties. They don't follow the laws that were established by the ancient forefathers. The laws are considered as principles. The laws are considered as principles. So when we come back, we're going to continue to talk about the year of Jubilee. So stay tuned to No Pork and All Pearls and we'll be back. And we're back to no pork and all pearls and thank you for tuning in tonight and thank you for your patience. I know this is a lengthy topic and we're talking about the year of Jubilee and we still haven't gotten into the text yet about the actual year of Jubilee yet. But there is so much to cover when we're talking about this. And we talked about in the first segment, we talked about the Constitution 
we established in the foundation that the treaties are the supreme law of the land. And we also talked about the freedom of religion. Now, I want to read an excerpt from a book by Peter Moon. And this was basically the Montauk Book of the Dead, which was written in 2005. But the Arthur Peter Moon said, speaking about Noble Drew Ali and what he calls the Ali Shuffle. It says, at the current time, the door to Moorish mysteries is opening far and wide. The age of Pisces is at an end, and the Moors are coming to receive their inheritance. Drew Ali incited this process when he returned to America and released a publication known as the Circle 7 Quran. While Drew Ali did not deliver the concise formula, as was clearly deline delineated in the synchronicity and the seventh seal, he represented the energy and was the energy of such. Drew Ali was very much a part of the mythos and reality that enabled me to write that book. What Drew Ali wrote was geared towards a format that would be accepted by his people at that particular time. It apparently worked quite well. When the Moorish science reached its peak in 1929, it was on the heels of one of the greatest but most dangerous discoveries Drew Ali ever made. In 1928, Ali attended a Pan-American conference in Havana, Cuba, where he enjoy, enjoyed broad recognition from a host of other countries. They were, of course, recognizing his sovereign status as a Moorish national who was representing the ancient empire of Omexum. Keep in mind that other countries had no reason to fear Drew Ali or what he represented. It was at this conference, however, that he received a document which was to change the face of Moorish science forever and would eventually lead to what is known as the Great Schism. That is the name the Moorish community uses to refer to the dispersal of Moorish science into different groups. The document Drew Ali received was a copy of a mandate whereby the Amexum Empire extended a land grant of the entire Western Hemisphere to certain Europeans. I have not yet seen the document and it is and its exact contents are highly mysterious, yet its ramifications literally turned the United States of America upside down. Essentially, it leased America to a certain party for a particular number of years, not unlike the way China leased Hong Kong to Great Britain. The lease was up in 2004. It is entirely reasonable to believe that such a document, if it still exists and can be brought to light, <coughs> is a mere relic of a long forgotten era that has no significant meaning in today's legal system. That would be fine except for one very important point. If you have truly studied and detailed legal history of the United States of America, you would understand that there is more than a little truth to the prospect of their bearing such a document. Why? The entire legal history of the United States is 
predicated on such a proposition. What is known is that the Secretary of State Hughes from the U.S. government attended the Pan-American Conference and was made privy to this mandate. So were several other heads of states. As a result, a closed-door conference between several nations was held in Geneva, Switzerland, and a Labyrinthine series of discussions and negotiations began. The Geneva conferences went on for some five years, but records are still kept sealed to this very day. It is known that several international banks called in their loans as a result of this potential legal threat and the stock market crashed in 1929. Several countries, which include the United States, Portugal, France, and Spain declared bankruptcy in order that relevant powers could buffer themselves from any potential legal claims. In the case of the United States of America, it was reorganized with a new corporate legal status. Franklin Roosevelt was a part and parcel of the entire plan when he abolished the gold standard and created the New Deal. Federal Reserve notes were then issued in place of gold-backed currency. The Great Seal of the Moors was used on the back of the notes. It's still on the back of the notes. People behind the Geneva conferences were so concerned about any potential boomerangs from the Moors issue that they began a full-barrel character assassination of Moorish heritage. The most flagrant example of this was when two individuals put together the infamous Amos and Andy show, and it became the first nationally syndicated radio show in history. It was deliberately designed to spoof the Moorish Science Temple. Now, I'm going to stop with that because I had to read that just to share with you that in 1928, Noble Drew Ali went to a Pan-American conference and he was recognized by other nations as a Moorish national. And he was handed land grants to the whole western continent or hemisphere. That's important to remember. Very, very important to remember. Now, I have to read a divine warning by the prophet for the nations. This is something that Prophet Noble Drew Ali wrote. And it's something that's going to be made clear in this letter about what's going on. And it says that the citizens of all free national governments, according to their national constitution, are all one family bearing one free national name. Those who fail to recognize the free national name of their constitutional government are classed as undesirables and are subject to all inferior names, abuses, mistreatments, 
that the citizens care to bestow upon them. And it is a sin for any group of people to violate the national constitutional laws of a free national government and, and to cling to names and the principles that delude to slavery. Okay, names and principles that delude to slavery. Names and principles. Remember that name and principles. In the letter, in the divine warning by the prophet, if you go to the fourth paragraph, this is something that he says. He says, I love my people and desire their unity and mine back to their own free national and divine standard because day by day they have been violating the national and constitutional laws of their government by claiming names and principles. There we go again, names and principles that are unconstitutional. If Italians, Greeks, English, Chinese, Japanese, Turks, and Arabians are forced to proclaim their free national name and religion, name and religion. When we're talking about religion, religion is talking about principles. The religions carry the principles. Before the constitutional government of the United States of America, it is more than right that the law should be enforced upon all other American citizens alike. In all other governments, when a man is born and raised there and asks for his national descent name, and if he fails to give it, he is misused, imprisoned, or exiled. Any group of people that fail to answer up to the constitutional standards of law by name and principles, because to be a citizen of any government, you must claim your national descent name, because they place their trust upon issue and names formed by their forefathers. Let me read that last line again. Because they place their trust. When it's talking about placing the trust, it's actually talking about a trust. A trust, like a trust fund. A trust, a trust. The whole world operates with trust. That's how they conduct business and trust. That's why the last name is so important. The last name denotes the trust. It's the family trust. The name is a trust. And these trusts were formed by the forefathers. So if you're not using certain names, if you're not using certain names, then you're not associated with certain trust. Certain names are tied to certain trust. And all of our ancestors Establish trust. That's how the whole world operates. Trust. All right. So, why did I read that? Why did I read that? 
I read that because the prophet Noble Ali kept talking about names and principles. Names and principles. Name. When we're talking about name, we're talking about pedigree. We're talking about pedigree. Pedigree. Pedigree deals with bloodline. Pedigree deals with bloodline. And now we're getting ready to start getting into the meat and potatoes of what we're talking about tonight. So let's take another break, and I'll be back with more of tonight's episode, The Year Jubilee on No Pork and All Pearls. Okay, and we're back to No Pork and All Pearls. And the last segment we ended off was talking about pedigree. And when we're talking about pedigree, we're starting to talk about blood. Okay, we're talking about blood. We're talking about inheritance. Now, you must understand two things. You must understand the republic, and you must understand the democracy. You must understand the republic, and you must understand the democracy. The reason you need to understand the republic and the democracy is because the republic is ran on a lodial law, a lodial law, and the democracy is ran on a system of feudal law. Feudal law or feudalism. So let's look up the word allodium. Allodium, which denotes to allodial law. I'm finding this in the Black's Law Dictionary. Allodium. Allodium is land held absolutely in one's own right and not of any lord or superior. Land not subject to feudal duties or burdens. An estate held by absolute ownership without recognizing any superior to whom any duty is due on account thereof. That's Elodium. Elodio. Let's look at Elodio. Elodio is free, not holding of any lord or superior, owned without obligation of vassalage, V-A-S-S-A-L-A-G-E, or fealty, the opposite of feudal. So elodio is the opposite of feudal. So you would say, well, what is feudal? Let's look at what feudal is. 
simply it's the opposite of a lodium, but you know, let's look at feudal. Okay, feudal law. Feudal law is the body of jurisprudence relating to feuds. The real property law of the feudal system. The law anciently regulating the property regulations of lord and vassal. And the creation, incidents, and transmission of feudal estates. The body of laws and usages constituting the feudal law was originally customary and unwritten, but a compilation was made in the 12th century called Feodorum Consutidums. 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 Okay. Which was formed the basis which has formed the basis of later digests. The feudal law prevailed over Europe from the 12th to the 14th century and was introduced into England at the Norman Conquest, where it formed the entire basis of the law of real property until comparatively modern times. Survivals of the feudal law to the present day so affect and color that branch of jurisprudence as to require a certain knowledge of the feudal law in order to better comprehend modern tenures and rules of real property law. So in a nutshell, as I said, feudal, feudal law is the body of jurisprudence relating to feuds. So whenever there's like disputes and things like that, that's when feudal law takes place. Now, why, why am I talking about disputes and feudal law and then I'm showing the difference between that and between the, the difference of allodial law? Allodial law is a higher law than feudal law. And because allodial law is a higher law than feudal law, it supersedes feudal law. Now, the reason why People are operating in feudal law is because there are feuds or there are disputes. What would cause a dispute or a feud? So I'm going to be reading out of a book that deals with estates and land and future interests. It deals with estates and land and future interests. And it talks about the traditional classifications of estates and future interests. I'm looking for a specific topic here. And the topic I'm looking for is the topic of inheritability. Okay, here we are, section five. The growth of the concept of inheritability pre-mo 
progenitor. Still to be answered is the question of how much of an interest each transferee by subinfudation, subinfudation, subinfud is inside of this word, feud is inside of this word, or substitution will receive. We must retreat to surmise for part of our answer. Today, when we think of someone owning a parcel of land outright, we think of the ownership as implying the right of the owner's heirs to have the land if the owner has not transferred it during his life or by his will. So deeply embedded in our law is the idea of inheritability of land. Let me read that again. So deeply embedded in our law is the idea of inheritability of land that it is difficult to imagine that ownership could ever have meant anything else. It seems quite clear that inheritability of land had been known in England before the conquest, once again the Norman conquest, but it is also clear that lands held in feudal knight service immediately after the conquest were not freely inheritable. A transfer would receive from his transferor simply the right to enjoy the land of life. Upon the transferee's death, and sometimes up upon the transferor's death as well, the transferee's ownership would wholly terminate, and the right of enjoyment would move back up the pyramid to the next tier of ownership. Now, the tiers of ownership is the tiers that's, that's um, denoted by feudal law. And those tiers were, you had the king. The king was the lord of the land. Then you had the barons. The barons were referred to as the middle lords. And then you had the knights. The knights were the, the misni lords or the lower lords. So there were three tiers. The knights, the barons, and the kings. And all that was done under feudal law feudal law and the only reason for feudal law is because there was a dispute or there was a problem of heritability which created inheritability 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 meaning that an individual did not step up to inherit the land or they were deemed to be non-inheritable. Non-inheritable. You see, land was always inherited and it was always passed down. It was transferred to the heirs. So when you have a situation where 
there is no heir that's deemed qualified or competent to inherit the land, then that land would go up into dispute. And when you're dealing with disputes, you're dealing with feuds. And that's when feudal law takes place. And feudal law has all these different statutes and rules and different tiers and all kind of things that's in place so that an individual can possess the land for periods of time, but not possess the land for eternity. Because feudal law is not the highest law. Allodial law is the highest law. Allodial law puts things back into the proper status of being able to be inherited it and passed down and owned completely by the individual. Now, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, we're going to actually go to Leviticus 25, and we're going to see the ancient law that the Hebrews used to make sure that there would be no disputes or there would be no feuds when it came to the possession of the land. So stay tuned to No Pork and All Pearls, and we'll be back. All right, and we're back to No Pork and All Pearls, and we're going to get into Leviticus 25. And what we're going to do is we're going to read the verses that's talking about the year of Jubilee. So starting at verse 8, it says, And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years. Now, seven Sabbaths, like every seven years is a Sabbath year. Every seven years is a Sabbath year. So it's saying seven times seven years and there shall be unto thee the days of seven sabbaths of years even forty and nine years so that means like forty nine years so after forty nine years verse nine says then shall thou make proclamation with the blast of the horn on the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement shall ye make proclamation with the horn throughout all your land and ye shall hallow the 50th year hallow means to make it sacred and proclaim liberty throughout the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you, and you shall return every man unto his possession, and you shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee shall that 50th year be unto you. Now these are specific instructions. Remember, 
Torah means law or instruction. Leviticus means the laws of the priest. So these are specific instructions given to the priest. These are things that have to be done. These are law. This is ancient law. This is Hebrew law. Verse 11 says, A jubilee shall that fiftieth year be unto you. You shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy unto you. You shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. These are specific instructions given to the people, the ones who follow the law, the ones who are in covenant, the ones who follow the treaty. In this year of Jubilee, you shall return every man unto his possession. Now, these are specifically for the priest, the priesthood. This is the ones who are responsible for the people. But it's not only for the priesthood, it's for anyone who takes an oath or a vow as a priest, anyone who takes an oath to follow the laws of God, the laws of nature, the laws of the creator. These are laws that have to be abided by. And if thou sell aught unto thy neighbor, or buy of thy neighbor's hand, you shall not wrong one another. According to the number of years after the jubilee, thou shalt buy of thy neighbor, and according unto the number of years of the crops, he shall sell unto thee. According to the multitude of the years, thou shalt increase the price thereof, and according to the and according to the fewness of the years, thou shalt diminish the price of it. For the number of crops does he sell unto thee. And you shall not wrong one another, but thou shalt fear thy God. And I am the Lord your God. When it's talking about fearing God, it's talking about respecting the laws of God. And it's talking about follow the laws of God. It's not talking about being scared. It's talking about reverencing the law and respecting the law. That's what this is saying. Wherefore, ye shall do my statutes, meaning you shall follow my ordinances and keep my ordinance and do them. And you shall dwell in the land. In safety. So you'll be straight if you follow the law, if you do the law, and if you abide by the law. And the land shall yield her fruit. And ye shall eat until ye have enough and dwell therein safety. And you shall say, what shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we may not sow nor gather in our increase. Then I will command my blessings upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth produce for the three years. 
So he's saying if you follow what I'm telling you to do, if you follow the laws in the sixth year, you're going to have enough produce that's going to last for up to three years. And ye shall sow the eighth year and eat up the produce, the old store until the ninth year, until her produce come in, and ye shall eat up the old store. And the land shall not be sold in preparatory, for the land is mine. For ye are strangers and settlers with me. So you can't sell the land, meaning the priests are the ones who are in charge, the ones who are placing authority over the other people who can't be in authority for themselves, the possessors of the land. These people cannot sell off land or none of that kind of stuff. They have to just keep it clear and without any hindrances. They can't block it or nothing. They have to just kind of like let it rest. It's a Sabbath for the land. So in all the land of your possessing, ye shall grant a redemption for the land. That's a term, redemption. We all know about redemption processes. The land is to be redeemed. If thou brother be waxing poor and sell some of his possessions, then shall his kinsmen that is next unto him come and shall redeem that which his brother have sold. That's the whole thing about the kinsman redeemer. So even if your brother or your sister or your family member or whomever, your fellow national, if they had to sell their possessions for whatever reason, because they came on hard times and they had to let the land go, the land was taken from them for whatever reason, a kinsman redeemer can come in and they can redeem that land. They can redeem that land back. They can get it back during this period, which is the year of Jubilee, which is that 50-year period. And if a man have no one to redeem it, and he be waxing rich and find sufficient means to redeem it, then let him count the years of the sale thereof and restore the overplus unto the man to whom he sold it. And he shall return unto his possession. But if he have not sufficient means to get it back for himself, then that which he have sold shall remain in the hand of him that have bought it until the year of Jubilee. And in that Jubilee, it shall go out and he shall return unto his possession. So once again, okay, if an individual cannot possess the land, if he don't have sufficient means, as it says, or he don't have the right knowledge, or if he don't have the proper ability to redeem the land, then the individual who the land had been given to gets to keep that land until the year of Jubilee. And then at the year of Jubilee, they have to let the land go. They have to release that land. And they got to return back into their inherited land. 
their land of possession, their family land, their family trust, their family estate. They have to let that land go by law, by Levitical law, by ancient Hebrew law, which is the law of, which is the supreme law of the land, which is covenant, which is treaty. That's what this is. And if a man sell a dwelling house in a walled city, a walled city, then he may redeem it within a whole year after it is sold. For a full year shall he have the right of redemption. Okay, so we're talking about walled cities. And they're saying that he may redeem it within a whole year after it's sold. So you have up to a whole year. A full year shall he have the right of redemption. And if it is not redeemed within the space of a full year, then the house that is in the wall city shall be made sure and perpetuity perpetu to him that brought it throughout his generations. It shall not go out in the Jubilee, but the house, houses of the villages which have no wall around about them shall be reckoned with the fields of the country, they may be redeemed, and they shall go out in the Jubilee. But as for the cities of the Levites, the houses of the cities of their possessions, the Levites shall have a perpetual right of redemption. And if a man purchase of the Levites, then the house that was sold in the city of his possessions shall go out in the Jubilee. For the houses of the cities of the Levites are their possession among the children of Israel. But the fields of the open land about their cities may not be sold, for that is their perpetual possession. And if thy brother be waxing poor, and his means fail with thee, then thou shalt uphold him. You see that? It says thou must uphold him. If they're waxing poor, and if their means fail, then you shall uphold him. Meaning you should advocate for him. You should be the representative for him. As a stranger... And a settler shall he live with thee. So the individual that you looking after, he shall live with you. Take thou no interest of him or increase, but fear thy God. And thy brother may live with thee. Thou shalt not give him thy money upon interest, nor give him thy victuals for increase. I am the Lord your God who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. And if thy brother be waxing poor with thee and sell himself unto thee, thou shalt not make him to serve as a bond servant. Meaning you shouldn't enslave your brother because he's poor or because he don't have the means or he's not smart enough or whatever. You don't serve, you don't make him a bond servant to you. You don't make him become your slave. That's not how you you handle them. That's not how you deal with them. It says, He shall serve with thee until the year of Jubilee. Then shall he go out from thee, he and his children with him, and shall return up to his own family and unto the possession of his fathers shall he return for they are my servants who I brought forth out of the land of Egypt 
They shall not be sold as bondsmen. They shall not rule over him with rigor, but shall fear thy God. And as for thy bondmen and thy bondsmaid, whom thou mayest have of the nations that are round about you, of them shall uh -oh. shall ye buy bondmen and bondsmaids. Moreover, of the children of the strangers that do so journey among you, of them may ye buy, and of their families that are with you, which they have begotten in your land, and they may be your possession. And ye may make them an inheritance for your children after you to hold for a possession. Of them may ye take your bondmen forever. But over your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule me over another with rigor. And if a stranger who is a settler with thee be waxen rich, and thy brother be waxen poor besides him, and sell himself unto the stranger who is a settler with thee, or to the offshoot of a stranger's family, after that he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brethren may redeem him, or his uncle, or his uncle's son may redeem him, or any that is nigh of kin unto him of his family may redeem him, or if he be waxen rich, he may redeem himself. And he shall reckon with him that brought him from the year that he sold himself to him unto the year of Jubilee. And the price of his sale shall be according unto the number of years. According to the time of a higher servant shall be with him. If there be yet many years, according unto them, he shall give back the price of his redemption out of the money that he was brought for. And if there remain but few years until the year of Jubilee, then he shall reckon with him. According unto his years shall he give back the price of the redemption. As a servant hired year by year shall he be with him. He shall not rule with rigor over him in the sight, in thy sight. And if he be not redeemed by any of these means, then he shall go out in the year of Jubilee, he and his children with him. For unto me the children of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. <clears throat> now, I read all that, and I encourage you to read and to study that, because these are laws. These are the actual laws that's followed by the individuals of this land. This is one of the recognized laws. This law... I took from the um, Jewish books. If you find any Jews, the Jews follow these laws. They follow these laws to a T. Individuals who practice Islam, Muslims, Muslims, these individuals follow the law. The Catholics, that's why they say the good Catholics. If you remember when they were talking about John F. Kennedy, they asked him if it came down to being a good president and a good Catholic, what would you choose? But the term good Catholic means a law-abiding Catholic because as I showed you, Protestants or protesters are not considered as good Catholics and they're not considered as Catholics at all. And Catholics are basically the Christians. So anytime you're dealing with any of the Protestant 
divisions of Christianity, you're dealing with individuals who are looked upon as not law-abiding Christians. And if you really want to look at it and you want to talk about religion, these individuals are the ones who say that they are under the covenant of grace and mercy. They don't have to follow the law no more. They are under grace and mercy. But that's not true. Because Jesus came and said that he came to fulfill the law. So, in fulfillment of the law was to bring them back into the fold of the law. And this is what Prophet Noble Jew Ali did. He came in 1913. And I'm getting ready to wrap this up. I know I only went on for a long time. So I just want to show y'all something real fast, real quick. So, the Emancipation Proclamation, the word emancipate, remember when we was looking up the term about Jubilee. It was talking about emancipation, right? In 1863 was the year of the Emancipation Proclamation. So 1863, it says January 1st, 1863. That's when the Emancipation Proclamation was made. So 50 years from 1863 was 1913. 1913 it's when Prophet Noble Jew Ali came and established the old Canaanite temple. It was a civic organization. It was an organization trying to help the people to learn about civics, citizenship, citizenship and status, and status correction, and becoming recognized back in the constitutional fold of government. 50 years from that was 1963. Do a research on the things that was happening in 1963. We're dealing with the civil rights movements and all that kind of stuff that was going on in 1963. 50 years from 1963 was 2013. Now, 2013 plus seven more years. Remember, every seven years is considered as a Sabbath. Every seven years is the Sabbath year. Seven years from 2013 is 2020, which is now. So they had until 2020 to declare year jubilee and to make things available for the people to become free, to make the land available to become free. 2020, that's why this is the year of jubilee. This is that year. It's been 50 years, and this is the seventh year, which is the Sabbath year, that's getting ready to lead into a whole new beginnings of Sabbaths or whatever. So 2020, this is the year, according to their law, which is the religious laws, and the Constitution says that we all have the freedom of religion and nobody can be denied their right of religion. And religion deals with principles. Prophet Noble Drew Ali said the names and the principles. The principles is the laws that you follow. The laws that you follow are the ancient laws that were established upon this land in conjunction with the Constitution and in conjunction with 
any other treaties that were made or are being made. Those are the laws of the land. But the supreme law of the land is the treaties, which goes back to the religious text. So this is why the year of Jubilee is so important, because by law, these things have to be followed to a T. And if you have the means and if you have the knowledge to do these things as far as to redeem the people, to redeem the land, it's your obligation to do so for your families, for your people. You have the right to do it and you can do it. And nothing can stop you from doing it but you. But you must position yourself with the right knowledge, with the right procedures, with the right processes to go forth and do these things. So this is why Year of Jubilee is so important. So thank you for tuning in tonight to No Pork and All Pearls. And I know it was lengthy and I know it was long and there was a lot of information that was covered. But hopefully someone will be able to utilize this information and be able to know that this is the year that the people can be set free, that the lands can be redeemed, and that we no longer have to be under the yoke and the burden of the oppressors. I'm not going to do an ancestral archive because this episode has been long enough. But thank you for tuning in and join me again next week, next Friday at 7 p.m. when we'll come back with a new episode of No Pork and All Pearls. And until then, I just want to leave you with peace, love, and shalom.